And as I told you just a few minutes ago, we're talking about the food of the future tonight. That is prompted by a most interesting new book, really quite enjoyable, by Josh Schoenwald, who's one of our guests. He's a Chicago-based journalist, and his new book is titled The Taste of Tomorrow, Dispatches from the Future of Food. Our other two guests are food persons, certainly. Christopher Kotke is the vice president uh, at Kendall College School of Culinary Arts. Um, and Homaro Kantu is the executive chef at two restaurants of his own. One is called the Moto Restaurant, where I just learned the average tab for a dinner runs around $280. There must be a special reason for that. And then he's got a cheap restaurant called ING, Ing, I guess, uh, which also has to do with futuristic food. Uh, reading your book, Josh, I ran across a number of fascinating facts, and one of the most fascinating was this simple uh, bit of statistics, that in the year 2010, 17,000 new food products were introduced in this country. 17,000. Yes, it's a uh, extraordinarily productive name food. The first, the- name the first thousand. Ah, uh, uh, <laughs> Uh, hamburger helper, um, uh, Lipton chicken soup, and uh, Homaro Cantu's uh, edible pay- edible menus. No, but but uh, Lipton's uh, chicken soup has been, or whatever, has been around for a long time, hasn't it? Right. I'm sure there's been a line extension, like a Lipton's chicken soup with um, low sodium or. Uh, that's a big part of the product. Or just a little bit of tinkering are, with the product. Tinkering with product. Classify it as would, a new would product. Contribute to that. But what have been some of the really unusual ones that popped up in recent years on the counters of the of the food markets? Some of the really unusual products that have, well, I mean, I guess uh, just things that people are unfamiliar with. Like one example would be, um, you know, the whole phenomenon of superfoods. And uh, you got me products, products like like acai. Um, well, what, what's a superfood? A superfood would be a uh, a fruit or vegetable endowed with some desirable health properties, like high antioxidants, um, uh, beta carotene. Um, for instance, pomegranate when it sort of hit on the scene about five or years ago or so is considered the big what some people in the business of food trend spotting uh what i describe in the book as this whole class of people called that i refer to as food futurists and there's this whole group of people who Mm -hmm. specialize in this would uh these people would describe pomegranate as you know the beginning of the superfood trend um palm wonderful uh this company that makes pomegranate juice uh, very much introduced uh, pomegranate and, you know, highlighted its, you know, health virtues. I would guess I'm the only guy around this table who's never eaten a pomegranate. We should have brought one in. Yeah. Wow. Had we known. I think I know what they look like. But <laughs> that's about it. I tend to be quite conservative in my, in my uh, eating. There are things I have never eaten and never will, which are commonly done, like oysters. Really, I've eaten smoked oysters, but never oyster on the shell. As uh, as, Woody, mm-hmm. as Woody Allen says someplace, I don't want my food uh, tired or stunned. I want it dead. <laughs> and the, the idea of eating a live creature, which the oyster is, if it's on the shell, really upsets me. It doesn't upset but me. They're, but they're, sir, they're really good. 
I mean, they really are good. <laughs> I'm sure they are. See, I, uh, I can totally relate with you because you you are the American consumer. Yeah, I am. And you know, you're really just the global consumer. You want your food. You don't want to think about it, and you want it to be great. Um, and I think the problem with product development is that there's these small incremental steps. And we're going to give you soda today that's half as bad for you as it was last year. And then next year, maybe we'll chop another 10% off of that sugar. Um, but nobody's really come forward and said, hey, we're going to give you Coca-Cola, and it's actually going to be good for you. It's going to be as good for you as drinking green Boy, tea. You, you got into a sensitive area there. Lots of us, as you know, are rather annoyed with uh, – uh, Mrs. Obama, and for that matter, with uh, Bloomberg, the mayor of New York. Neither of them knows uh, the classical literature, and neither of them understands a rule that was set down for us uh, many centuries ago by Epictetus, who says, preach not to others what they should eat, but eat as becomes you, and be silent. Uh, these food police who are showing up every place, uh, and now using control of our diet as yet another way to extend governmental power, are really Offensive, not merely aesthetically, but I think they represent something wrong in the direction that government is taking. Well, you know, I, I think a lot of that comes out of frustration, frustration with uh, looking at things like obesity in this country and, and feeling somewhat empowered or not, you know, or rather, you know, unempowered to, to change it. And so, uh, you know, there's clearly – we clearly have health issues in this country and that's, that's well documented. And so the question really becomes – you know, if, if if you look at the trajectory, what that's going to cost us as we go out in the future, well, you know, everyone's trying to do something. Now, whether it's, you know, banning Coca-Cola, I, you know, the, the problem with all this is there are no quick fixes to this. But I think it comes out of somebody's sense of frustration. I want to do something, and so let's, let's go for some low-hanging fruit. Speaking of obesity, I, I can't resist telling you something that I heard only today on the radio, which amused me and at the same time really rather confounded me. I was listening to WVON the black talk station in Chicago this afternoon while I was in my car. And uh, they were talking about how the Obamas aren't really spending much time with black people these days. And that rather offends them. One of the main hosts uh, on the station, former member of the Chicago City Council, was carrying on about this. And two other people were agreeing. And the one woman said, "Uh, really, uh, Mrs. Obama should come back uh, to our folks in Chicago, if she's concerned about obesity, we've got lots of obese kids, and she's got to do something about that. But she's not visiting the ghetto, not visiting the inner city in her campaign against obesity. Well, you know, I I can kind of see Mayor Bloomberg's point here. Uh, can you really? I can't. I don't agree with it. Um, the The answer here is we need competition. We need somebody to come out with an iPhone-level product and food that addresses the obesity issue with soda. We need to give you that thing that just tastes exactly like coca-cola except it's good for you then we're going to see a whole new spark in other companies probably infringing on patents and you know it's going to be another war like the cell phone wars and we we need that innovation in food we don't have it well you guys that is uh homaro and christopher run restaurants and uh is all of your menu composed of stuff that's quote good for you no What's bad for you on your on your, mes- <laughs> your, men- your menu well, over you know, at Kendall the, College? Well, the, the thing is, at, at, at the end of the day, we're not running a restaurant that's a spa-type restaurant. Yeah. And, and at the same time, I will say that the, that the menu that we have is not, is not you know, laden with excess fat. I mean, certainly 
there are things on there which are somewhat decadent because, first of all, our students have to learn all those things. Decadent, um, when we, food people are talking, yeah. is almost always followed by the word chocolate. Well, some of it is, and you could also put butter and heavy cream there too. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, you know. But at the same time, we also we we at the at the college have spent a lot of time in this whole area of sustainability, and that's a big big piece of what we do, and and uh, working with you know the farmers and all of this to provide some really great quality food, and and the reality is to have great food, it doesn't have to be something that's laden with lots of fat and everything, and and you know a lot of it is. Also, the base product, you know, I mean, just you know, I think I think when we look at the obesity issue, you know, there are certainly you know, one one way of solving that is to try to invent a new product that's going to help us from a health perspective. I think the other side is to go backwards and to look at, you know, for instance, the, the nutritional community says we should be eating lots of fresh fruits and vegetables every mm-hmm. day. That's great. But the reality is most of them taste pretty bad because they're not. They're not truly what they are supposed to be, and they've been bred to do lots of other well, things. Actually, oh, not Josh, Unwald, Josh Unwald recounts that he learned the glories of salad when his mother bought sort of a mixed bag as prepackaged in the food store. Absolutely. I uh, consider one of the uh, turning points in my own eating experience to be a bag salad mix. Um, up until I was in my mid-20s, my uh, knowledge of lettuce was that it was there was only one type of lettuce, and it was iceberg lettuce. Um, so the discovery of you know a spring mix with you know arugula and you know red oak and baby spinach, um, you know for me that that was revelatory. You know I in fact you know in the beginning of the taste of tomorrow, um, I you know confess that. You know, after trying a, a bag salad mix, I stopped eating iceberg lettuce entirely for like 14 years. Um, and this at one point was a source of some uh, embarrassment in the book because I, in, in my quest to find out what could be the future of salad, uh, one of the people I interviewed was the breeder of the dominant variety of iceberg lettuce. And so I was a little bit ashamed of admitting to Ed Ryder, um, you know, I'm very curious to talk well, to you. Well, iceberg lettuce still can be quite good if you it don't. It can be. If you it load can. it with a nice vinaigrette and uh, uh, and maybe a few croutons. Sure, sure. <laughs> it was. I, I think I suffered from iceberg fatigue by the I time see. I was 26. And so I was very excited that there was a whole world of, of salad greens out there. There's a whole world of not only food inventors or food researchers, but of food marketers that I really barely knew existed, but I've learned about from your book, which is titled, in case you've forgotten, The Taste of Tomorrow, Dispatches from the Future of Food. Great sub- subtitle as well. And uh, we want to look into that a little bit more fully when we return after some impending commercials and get the reactions of our two other guests, uh, Homaro, uh, Homaro Kantu and Christopher Kotke, to the adventures of Josh Schoenwald, all to follow after this. Extension 720 with Milt Rosenberg on 720 WGN. Uh, and we return to our three guests of the evening. Homaro Kantu, executive chef. I think you own both of these restaurants as well, don't you? They kind of own me. Okay. <laughs> They're Moto Restaurant and Ng, both of which are located at... 
Uh, Moto's at 945 West Fulton Market. Mm -hmm. Ng is at 951 West Fulton Market. Both in the Fulton Market. So right next door to each other. Yeah. Christopher Kochke is the vice president of Kendall College School of Culinary Arts. Uh, And Josh Schoenwald is the author of this most uh, interesting and informative new book, The Taste of Tomorrow. And one thing that this uh, teaches me as well is that the Reverend Malthus wasn't completely wrong, that there are many reasons why the food of the future needs to concern us. One is uh, for health reasons. You want uh, you, you, you deal with one guy who's pursuing the heart-healthy hamburger. He hasn't quite achieved it yet, but we'll talk about that. But the other, of course, is that the human population keeps growing, and food production apparently doesn't keep up with them. Malthus's dire vision was that uh, that food production increases arithmetically, but human population increases geometrically, so there's bound to be disaster, and that's why war and other disasters are desirable. They thin out the, the human population on the ground. Are we going to reach a point? Do some of the relevant uh, uh, serious scientists suggest that we might reach a point where literally we won't have enough food to feed the world? Well, or have absolutely. We, have we that, reached that point already? Well, absolutely. That is uh, a certainly... Uh, something that um, a lot of prognosticators are foreseeing, which is a uh, gloom and doom scenario. Um, you know, in my bo- journey, I, I certainly s- started out um, what I like to describe as a search for what might be in the whole foods of the future, what might be in the safe ways of the future. It was never intended as a book which was going to be focusing on these uh, issues uh, that Reverend These large Malthus, ecological demographic right, problems. Right. It, it, it didn't start out that way. But yeah. what I found is that the future of food question is inextricably mm-hmm. linked to the future of the earth question. And that, for me, most became unavoidable when I pondered the question, what could be the future of meat? And, you know, after, you know, beginning to you know, consider the possibility of looking, could there be some heritage variety of, of cattle that is, you know, appears on the scene? Could there be, um, you know, some new, some other species of some other animal that could be domesticated like the emu or the ostrich and become a bigger part of, of the future? Um, I definitely considered sustainability uh, to be a critical feature of that Investigation, in fact, and these are statistics that you hear to, you know, almost to the point of ad nauseum when you enter any conversation about the future of food. But the just the impact of animal livestock farming on the earth, um, you know, it requires already two thirds of the earth's <clears throat> land is used for animal livestock, and even produces, water, fresh produces water. gases which may contribute to uh, global warming. Right, more so than automobiles. And, yeah. you know, something, you know, 20 percent, uh, I don't know if this is a precise estimate, but something like 20 percent of the, you know, total greenhouse yeah. gas emissions on the planet are attributed to animal livestock. So the question is, something's got to give. Well, one of the most interesting angles that you report to us, and which I'd never heard about before, is the search for in vitro meat generation, growing real meat, or is it real, in a test tube, so to speak, or in vast test tube like vats. Uh, do either of our other guests know about that as an undertaking? 
Yeah, so I just got a question to ask. Would you much rather walk into a slaughterhouse where they're basically blowing pigs in the head with guns, or would you much rather walk into a clean room where they're making the exact same meat from the same cells that came off of that pig that's completely humane without any detrimental side effects? The the cells that came off of that pig leaving the pig alive? Yes, so you would even have to kill the pig. That sounds um, great. In the, uh, in the biotech world, there's a cell called a HeLa cell. Uh-huh. And uh, HeLa cells were actually extracted from a woman, um, you know, over 80 years ago. And they still use these same HeLa cells to test pharmaceutical drugs on from somebody that they, nobody could have foreseen what this woman, whose name was HeLa, uh, could have done to the medical community. And so now we're at a tipping point with livestock and with meat where the future is clearly going to be you're going to get your pork chop, except it's going to be grown. You know, you want to say a lab? I like to think of it as a brewery. When we brew beer, we're Uh creating something uh, through a natural process. Great, yeah. Here we're basically creating something that was in the natural world, and now we're just controlling it. So let's let's just throw it out there and, you know, make it really simple. You take a cell from a pig. Um, you then grow that cell, feeding it the same things that that pig would have fed it if it were alive. And then you work it out physically through electromagnetic or electro stim, uh, stimulation or basically shocking it. You've got to basically work it out. Well, how far have we gone in making that feasible? That hasn't I yet think, been achieved, has it? Well, it hasn't been achieved, but I would venture to guess that within the next five years you're going to see this on store shelves. It's really? going to happen, absolutely. Well, that's one of the things that Josh has been looking into. You agree with that forecast? Well, I was very intrigued by the possibility for many of the reasons Homero just described, which are, um, you know, the, it, it does take away a lot of the environmental and uh, ethical concerns. But part of the book, I, I, I went to the Netherlands, which was the first place to seriously fund research into uh, culturing meat, in vitro meat. And uh, in part, it was because of a prediction very much like what Homaro just said, is that we would see a commercial product within five years. And uh, what I found was that it was it was seemed to be a long way off. Not to blow the narrative suspense of this, this whole section of the book, but uh, that becomes a discovery. But Nonetheless, I would be very, very happy to see a commercial lab-grown product in Dominic's. In but what really appeals to me in all of this is the humane angle. Uh, it would, to me, be very desirable if that's the way we go, that those cells that are taken from animals that continue to live. Well, I, I like to look at it this way. When we go to the store and you buy your mushrooms, let's say mm-hmm. you go and you get oyster mushrooms. Those things were grown. They were cultivated. Okay, they were, they were synthetically, you know, they, we synthetically created the environment that they would have existed in in the wild, and we did it in a room, in a clean room. Why not do that with other things? Everything that we have created today has been according to man's design. This microphone that I'm talking in, these keys that I use in my lock, why can't we do that with food and make it more intelligent? Um, because right now food is very unintelligent. And what I do, um, we're, we're opening up a research facility next year which is going to be, you know, this is a big statement, but I call it the Xerox Park of Food. 
And what we have today is we have a computer revolution, and it's going to keep going for the next 200 years at least that we can foresee. The reason why that is is because companies like IBM, Xerox PARC, Bell Labs, back in the 50s and 60s, they pumped billions into microchip technology. And now we have cell phones and satellites and amazing technology. But that never happened in food. And what we need is we need a company to do that in food with no specific agenda, just green product design. We're going to investigate every angle, and we're going to find products and then license them to other con- companies and make it work. Who's the we you're talking about right now? Uh, well, myself and my crew. <laughs> we're, we're hiring uh, 15 of the world's brightest mm-hmm. industrial designers, engineers, computer scientists, electrical engineers, food scientists, and we're just going to do that. But your group yeah. isn't the only group in the world that's doing this we're, sort of We're not the only one. I mean, there are food companies that do it. But the problem with that, let's say that you're, you know, your, your company makes bread. And that's going to be your focus. In your research facility or your, your innovation team is just going to be thinking about bread. But what if I could say, hey, you know, I know how to make a, a loaf of bread without actually cooking it. Um, we could just use you know, natural fermentation and take it to a slightly different degree to create bread. That wouldn't exist in a bakery. Fascinating stuff. One thing we've not yet talked about, particularly tonight, is the importance of cooks, of chefs. Uh, well, of cooks at home and good chefs in restaurants or otherwise preparing food uh, for larger groups of people. And uh, it seems to me that that's the ultimate desideratum when it comes to the total preparation of food. Somebody's got to make it palatable and make it interesting. Indeed, the question arises, what tends to make food taste good? When does food taste at its best? Uh, one person that I was looking at argues that it tastes best when uh, you bring out the natural, real flavors that are there. That's the ultimate goal of the cook. We need to talk with a man who runs one of the great cooking schools of the Western world, Christopher Kotke of Kendall uh, College uh, of Culinary Arts. And we'll persist in that quest after we pause for an update on the evening's news from Paula Cooper. Extension 720 with Milt Rosenberg on 720 WGN. Shh. And we return to our three guests of the evening, um, and they are Homaro Kantu, executive chef at Moto and at Ing, and um, Josh Schoenwald, uh, from whom we've been getting some few items from his book. We'll return to that book um, in a while. And that book is titled The Taste of Tomorrow, Dispatches from the Future of Food. And Christopher Kotke is a very well-experienced chef. I've just been talking about his history as a chef, and he's worked in all the best places, including what was the best, and probably still is, I think, the best restaurant in Chicago, namely Les Nomades. It's a special place. A very really special is. place. Yeah. But you've been for some 17 years, did you say? 14. 14 years uh, at uh, Kendall College, where you are now vice president. The idea there is to make cooks. Um, you would agree, of course, that food... Um, that food science requires food art as well, culinary you know, art. You know, this is, this is such an interesting discussion tonight because when we look at how do we prepare our students to be the chefs of the future, I mean, that's ultimately our goal, is, you know, you, you really have to look at, at cooking as the intersection between art and science. And it used to be all art, and nobody ever thought it was a science. And now we've, we've really, a lot of our students actually come to us very interested in food science and, and the principles, the scientific principles behind food, which is great because if you understand what the science is of food, you are a much better chef. 
at the same time, there still is an artistic element to it. Um, and, and, you know, before we went to break, you know, you were talking about, about taste. And taste is something that is uh, incredibly complex because it combines our, the biology of our, of our beings and, and the way that we perceive taste, whether it's, you know, something in our mouth, in our nose, a sound, a sight, um, a texture. All of that feeds into our brains plus the sort of social background and upbringing. And taste is, is, is pretty amazing. I could taste, you know, we could, you and I could taste the same thing and, and you would go yuck and I would go, it's, it's unbelievably fantastic, like oysters, for instance. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's, it taste is, is it, it, on the one side kind of mysterious and on the other side it's, it's really scientifically well, it's very understood. It's ultimately mysterious. Indeed, you can uh, evoke one of the main problems, one of the main paradoxes, in epistemology as an area of philosophy. How do we know things? How do we know the sensations of the other person? Correct. The common formula for that is how do I know that when you see red, you're seeing what I see when I say I see red? Uh, we both have agreed to use that term for a certain experience that recurs in our experience, but we don't know that it is the same experience that you've got when you see red. It's a, and it's, that, yes. And the same would hold, I should think, for taste. Well, but that's why we have so many chefs out there. I mean, that, that really is. It's, think of it as going to the Art Institute. Some people are going to walk in and will be immediately drawn to a painting. And I, I think we can all agree that anything in the Art Institute, at least critically speaking, should be something special. But you're going to walk in and walk up to a painting and go, that is the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. And I'm going to walk up to it and say, it's nice, but I really like this one over here. And ultimately, that's why we have so many different I'm going to say, what are all those stupid Warhols doing up on the wall? (laughs) There there is a a new book, which, uh, Chris, maybe you're familiar with, uh, a very accessible general interest book, which sort of breaks down the mystery of taste. It's called Taste What You're Missing. Mm -hmm. It's by this Barb Stuckey who – Happened to be someone who I interviewed uh, over the course of my research. She was just at Kendall. Oh, she's a, just a at Kendall. Presentation. She's a, yeah. yeah, she's yeah. very good. And um, in the book, there are you know basically the equivalent of like a Myers Briggs for taste. So you can kind of get a sense of how your preferences vary from your spouse or something. And and that and, could be and, very useful. Yeah, that could be very <laughs> useful. Like I've always wondered why I've had this. This strange aversion to r- cultured dairy products, but yes, not you say when in this cooked. book that you don't want to write about cheese because you don't like cheese. Well, you know, quickly I discovered that the topic of the future of food was so big. I wasn't going to be writing the encyclopedia of the future of food, so I had to make some subjective <laughs> choices, and so I quickly eliminated uh, cheese because it's not something that I eat. So, uh, just Unless tonight I went through my standard ritual. I don't do it every night. But uh, <clears throat> I was able to get home for a few hours of relaxation. And I had a, uh, a vodka uh, on the rocks, which I made for myself, and some slices of brie with some crackers. And the brie is just right. And that is that's just a wonderful way to start the evening. I the vodka say. part sounds very appealing. Yeah, well, but... <laughs> So oh, but the I, I'd go with the brie part there, yeah. personally. <laughs> so I, I think, you know, the underlying theme is that if you asked a vegan or you asked anybody, if you could, you know, eat anything you wanted mm-hmm. every day, it would consist of something sweet, something rich and fatty, uh, you know, something that could loosen you up like vodka or alcohol, <laughs> maybe some soda without worrying about any dietary constraints, 
I think the universal you know answer would be I want all those guilty pleasures. Oh, absolutely. And I, and yeah. I think you know when you talk about all the chefs and what they do and who they're trying to please, they're really trying to tap into that universal. I like this flavor. And I think the the next company or companies that can design those food products, whether you buy it at the grocery store or in the restaurant, that can give you all of that with absolutely zero guilt, those are going to be the guys that take over the world. There's but, guilt, but there's also sort of moral concern. Um, here's a quotation from, of all people, Albert Einstein, who says, Although I have been prevented by outward circumstances from observing a strictly vegetarian diet, I have long been an adherent to that cause in principle. Besides agreeing with the aims of vegetarianism for aesthetic and moral reasons, it is my view that a vegetarian manner of living, by its purely physical effect on the human temperament, would most beneficially influence the lot of mankind. Okay, Albert, but then why, in fact, didn't you eat vegetarian? There at the Institute for Advanced Study at Princeton, they've got a very good dining room. And I've, I've dined there on occasion. And he could have had anything he wanted. So, in fact, he's evading something about himself. He says morally he is a vegetarian, but he couldn't stop eating meat. Well, I'll, I'll be the first to tell you I'm not a vegetarian. I would hope not. I go to McDonald's. I eat their French fries. I eat their hamburgers. And it's because I have a, a, fat, a fascination with how I can recreate that out of vegetable products. Uh-huh. Because if, if nobody ever does that, McDonald's will win. Nothing against McDonald's. I would love nothing more than to invent the Big Mac and license it to them, and it's actually something that's the equivalent of eating a granola bar in the morning. Well, Josh has been talking to a guy, uh, and you've got him in the book, who is in pursuit of the uh, the totally healthy hamburger. And it is is it to be made of something extracted from meat, or is it to be made of vegetables imitating meat? Well, that is, in, in that particular case, it was very much like the uh, engineered uh, burger that Homaro was describing. This would be um, pulled from a cell that comes from a cow. Uh, it would be grown in a nutrient broth uh-huh. to proliferate the cells. It would then be, uh, you know, after a sufficient number of these cell agglomeration of cells which would constitute, you know, what, is it cells or is it meat? You know, that's the, the, the eternal question. Uh, but at that, you know, a next great challenge is to, you know, figure out how it can achieve the texture of meat, you know, how it can, can rese- resemble what a ruminant does. One of the things uh, that really struck me in reading your account of that is that the man who was in pursuit of this uh, ultimate goal is named Matheny. That is a name which uh, still uh, rings with some interesting associations at this radio station, which was for two rather disastrous years uh, run, not by Matheny. He was second in command, but he, we, gen- we generally felt that he messed up almost everything we were doing here. So, <laughs> uh, I uh-huh. trust your Matheny so, right. is better than that. Yeah, is better at his work than that Who's Matheny also was. a uh, person with University of Chicago connections as well. Um, Your Matheny. My Matheny. Um, but yes, he was uh, a – he's not a uh, tissue engineer. He is um, He is a young man at – you know, now he's in his mid-30s who, you know, came to the realization that many, many people have that, you know, there has to be an alternative to conventional uh, meat production. He himself is a, is a vegan, um, you know, and – 
he and, and I and I I now uh, absolutely share his view. Um, in vitro meat, culturing meat is one approach. Um, <laughs> you know, a plant derived uh, mock meat, uh, a mycoprotein derived mock meat. A you know another option is insects. You know. Basically, the goal is alternatives Wait, to. Stop, stop right there. Another option is insects. What do, exactly do you mean by that? Well, I recently um, wrote a piece in Slate, which yeah. was titled, um, which has basically made the argument why we should eat uh, grasshopper tacos and kelp. You've, you've done that yourself, have you? I have not done it myself. I, I again, theoretically, okay. I, 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 I'm the, the the argument for um, eating insects is much the same. I as think Christopher has some testimony. No, they're they're fantastic. I, I do a lot of work in in the Americas, and uh, you, you know it's worms and grasshoppers, and and uh, I've there's three sizes of grasshoppers. The smaller ones are the better ones. Uh, well, how do you pre- flavors? You're the great chef here. How they, do you prepare them? They're they're sautéed. <laughs> sautéed and almost sort of stir fried, if you will, and a little bit of chili, and and uh, and they go into a into a quesadilla. Yeah. Or, well, and, and they're 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 actually they're actually very good, and and there's a, a lot of tradition. It's not some newfangled thing. I mean, is this in Mexico or where? absolutely? And, and and not just you know, I was just in Ecuador last week, and and um, same thing down there. And there's there's different insects they eat in the Amazon. And what other insects are? A lot of worms. Grubs, Worms. well, yeah, mm-hmm. ant insects, eggs. Insects are four Fantastic. fifths of the species, the or species on Earth. So, I mean, there it's a huge yeah. universe of possibilities and diversity. The stat that pro bug people will tell you, the evangelists, is that eighty percent of the world's countries eat insects. Well, Christopher Kotke, you were once, as you told us, um, at uh, Les Nomades, which I think is one of the great restaurants of the country. As it was originally organized by Jovan uh, Terboyevich, and it's still run by some very, very fine people. Indeed. Can you imagine in 10 years from now uh, at Les Nomades <laughs> serving something, serving grasshoppers well, prepared no. in some well, way? Well, I got to jump in here. Starbucks, <laughs> in their strawberry, you know, Flavor and color. They're yeah. putting Beetlejuice in this stuff. Are they really? It's true. I mean, it and was in the New York Times out. like a month ago, where somebody made a complaint: "Stop putting Beetlejuice in my strawberry smoothie." They've been doing it for years, and it's actually a common ingredient in FDC Yellow Number Six and Red uh-huh. Number Five. I mean, it's been in there for years. Nobody's ever. But that's, and not, they re- they that's not the crunchy it. body of a whole. But it's over. but it's in there. Right. Well, they but took it to out. Answer, to answer your question, though, I, I really, um, you know, Lenomod being what Lenomod is, mm-hmm. I, I would be hard pressed to see that. Um, but you know, I'll tell you, you have you know, with with you know, as our our interest in the cuisines of of Central and South America grows, I wouldn't be surprised to see <laughs> more of it. I, I can't imagine in the next ten years it's going to roll over this country and every kid is taking grasshoppers to school. Gentlemen, we're five minutes late for another round of commercials. uh, This talk is simply too fascinating for me to completely adhere to my schedule. But we'll stop for those commercials right now and then directly back to the team of Schoenwald, Kutke, and Cantor. Extension 720 with Milt Rosenberg on 720 WGN. And we return. Uh, Let's go back 
to the book by Josh Schoenwald. And indeed, Josh Schoenwald probably knows the most about his book of all the four people at this table. Um, You've run into a number of very interesting people doing sort of odd stuff. They're eccentric, but possibly visionary. And maybe you have to be eccentric to be visionary. Who really impressed you the most in terms of the influence he or she will have on the way we eat in future years? That's a really tough question. I, and no one has asked it in that way, um, I would say I w- became very um, inspired by the possibility of indoor aquaculture. Um, one of the, and again, this is an idea like in vitro meat, um, where it doesn't immediately strike people as romantic sounding, the idea of growing, um, you know, marine <coughs> fish indoors away from the sea but well, they do a uh, lot of that already don't they they're starting to <coughs> well, they're fish, starting to aquaponics and fish some, farms are quite big aren't they fish farms are big but this is a it's called virginia cobia farms and cobia is a saltwater fish it's a large saltwater fish and what this group is beginning to do is you know taking uh, a fish that is you know, can be grown in salt water, and they're raising it in essentially freshwater conditions 300 miles from the sea. And the the uh, person who, you know, initiated this whole uh, idea is a, uh, a kidney doctor. He was a pediatric kidney specialist, and, and, it, and it, was a, it was a breakthrough in uh, the medical research world uh, which enabled uh, them to be to apply this to aquaculture and to figure out how to raise saltwater fish at much much lower levels of salinity and this essentially opens up the possibility of beginning to raise saltwater fish uh, you know domestically here in the states in the middle of the country you could have a you know cobia or uh, you know Atlantic salmon coming from Schaumburg. Um, and, 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 and so I, I think, um, you know, given a lot of the concerns that people have about traditional aquaculture, uh, escapes, you know, its impact on the ecosystem, you know, a lot of, you know, the soaring appetite for seafood is, um, I, I, I became, you know, very much uh, impressed with the the possibility of including this as one additional means of of sating our seafood appetite, not the only one, but as an alternative to, you know, shipping it from Vietnam and 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 China, uh, Virginia Cobia Farms, and 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 the person behind this is Dr. Bill Harris is mm-hmm. his name. Uh, definitely, <clears throat> you know, if you if I had to single out one idea uh, right now, uh, that would be it. Uh, I'm looking for a quotation that I have in here someplace from George Orwell, of all people, who says, uh, we may find in the long run that tin food is uh, a deadlier weapon than the machine gun. It's an objection by tin food, he means stuff in cans, obviously. Uh, And that would have been written, I suppose, 50 years ago. But all the same, it shows a kind of an aversion to, uh, I guess, to canned food. Maybe he would be equally upset, would have been equally upset about frozen food. Um, is there some continuing resistance to preserve food of that sort? I've never been particularly fond 
of anything that comes out of a can, though I've certainly opened a can of beans in my time. Well, I mean, nobody will dispute the fact that fresher is going to be more preferred. Yeah, but that's the point. There's always been preservation techniques that are more effective <laughs> in creating better flavor in products. How are you going to make a pickle without preserving it? I mean, you know, it depends on what you're going for, and everything has its place. But I think that, uh, you know, George Orwell lived in a much different culture than we live today. Um, you know, today we, we're trying to design a farm that you could put in your house. And it would take up about 16 square feet, and it would feed a family of four. Um, and we're doing it. Uh, I think that's the future. <clears throat> I think you, you just set something up in the corner of your room, and, you know, contractor comes out. And it out. gives all the food you need for a family of four? Vegetables, fruits, Vegetables. Um, yeah. things like that. Everything except grains. Grains are a little more difficult to grow. But uh, I foresee the future as being uh, decentralized produce, where the home controls that and you you really have everything that you need to grow produce in your house right now you have the right temperature usually you have the right humidity and you have food scraps which can be composted into usable vermicompost or worm casting soil am i supposed to know what that means better better explain that basically it's simple uh (laughs) what we do at moto and soon ing is we take our food scraps and we compost it so we take worms and they break it down and they create what's called vermicompost. And we found a formula that uh, offsets thousands of dollars every week in food costs because we're growing expensive food products within well, the well, same what do you, space. What do you do with that vermicompost? Is that what you called it? Vermicompost is nothing more than dirt. So just think of it as highly nutrient-rich dirt. And what do you do with it? You plant seeds in it and then you grow uh-huh. greens or tomatoes. We're growing watermelons, uh, square watermelons, tomatoes. We're working on a banana tree, uh, orange tree, a black truffle. Out on a France. farm someplace or in your, in your building? Literally right next door to the kitchen in the basement in Chicago. Mm-hmm. We're going to be growing the best heirloom tomatoes in the world uh, in January. And that's because we're controlling everything. Uh, we're controlling the humidity, the lighting. You mean you will produce a tomato that tastes like a tomato? It'll be a real tomato, an heirloom seed tomato, non-genetically modified You'll get it in January. And uh, so now, because of indoor farming, um, you don't care about the seasons. The, you know, when, you, when it's winter, you're heating yourself. You're heating your home. So, you know, you've got immediately, you know, a nice spring atmosphere, spring-summer atmosphere to extend the growing season. For the last 30 years, I've been looking for a tomato that matches the superb mm-hmm. tomatoes I had in a little taverna uh, on the island of Aegina, just uh, off the coast of, uh, of Athens. <clears throat> um, one wonderful day in that taverna, the woman brought us a tomato sliced with a vinaigrette uh, with a heavy oil on it uh, and some feta and a few olives. And, of course, we sat there drinking a beer together with that. It was one of the most glorious moments, uh, gustatory moments of my life. I fully understand that it wasn't just the food. It was the setting and it was... Mm the way the whole thing came together. Still, it was a great tomato and tomato-ness. And I really find it very hard to duplicate that. Sometimes when I go to Greek restaurants, I ask for the very same dish. I instruct them, take a tomato, slice it up, give me some feta, and put a vinaigrette on it, a few black olives. And I just did that last night. In all honesty, I did, just last night. And it was all right, but tomato didn't have that essence of tomato-ness. But, you know, this is, this is an interesting comment because, you know, when we talk about what is the future of food, we've, we've had a lot of discussions about 
what are sort of at the technological fringes mm -hmm. that could be food sources? Because, I mean, the reality is if, if you look at, you know, global picture now, if you look at population growth and all of that and, and the state of agriculture um, and, and of meat production, we, we have serious food issues that will be upon us in the next, you know, 20 years, um, which it was very complex. But, but the reality is I think that part of what we need to do and part of what the future of food looks like is not always trying to see can we grow a piece of meat in a, in a, in a Petri dish. Uh, I would much rather say, you know, as, as a chef, how can we rather look backwards? In other words, how can we be, be accessing mm -hmm. great tomatoes, great peaches, great apples, and eating, if we want, less meat? I mean, meat certainly is a resource. It takes up a lot, but there's there's other ways of, of doing it. See, we I, are overdue yeah. once again for a necessary pause, uh, and we will go to the WGN newsroom and Paula Cooper. It's Extension 720 with Milt Rosenberg from the Allstate Studios in Chicago on 720 WGN. The book that has uh, generated this program is... Uh, by Josh Schoenwald, one of our guests, and it's titled The Taste of Tomorrow. Of it, one of the best reporters I know, one of the best writers I know, and a pretty good friend, in fact, Ron Rosenbaum, has this to say. Josh Schoenwald is an adventurous reporter and an engaging writer whose appetite for his subject, so to speak, produces prose with just the right leavening of humor. If we are what we eat, his real subject is cultural self-definition. Um... I agree completely with Ron Rosenbaum. Uh, so Josh Schoenwald is one of our guests, and Christopher uh, Kotke is another, vice president at Kendall College School of Culinary Arts, uh, and Homaro Kantu, who is executive chef at both Moto Restaurant and chef and owner at Ng Restaurant, and an inventor, as we've heard tonight, of futuristic food delivery systems. Another very interesting topic that occurs in... Uh, in, in Josh's book, uh, is uh, simply uh, preferences for ethnic cuisines of various kinds and some predictions about the ethnic cuisines to come. I've always loved this quotation from Alice May Brock. And you, I think you uh, talked to Brock, didn't you? To, for, to who, did you say again? Alice May Brock. Didn't you interview her? I did not. No. Anyway, she's a woman from the French, what do they call her restaurant? Don't any of you know her? Alice May Brock. I thought she was quite famous for the French something or other out in California. The French Laundry? The French, French Laundry? I, Alice, Alice, Alice Waters? Waters? No. Uh, Alice Waters is the one out there. You're right. right. I'm not sure then who Alice May Brock is. Yeah. But she got off a very good uh, uh, concept in the following quotation. Tomatoes and oregano make it Italian. Wine and tarragon make it French. Sour cream makes it Russian. Lemon and cinnamon make it Greek. Soy sauce makes it Chinese. Garlic makes it good. Uh, is that a fair uh, analysis of the difference between those famous ethnic cuisines? Somewhat. <laughs> I think it's stereotyping a little bit. Of, of course. It's simplifying, surely. At any rate, Josh finds that new ethnic cuisines are coming in. And one is a cuisine that I've been eating for years. I even cook in it a little bit, namely Indian cuisine. When I was a graduate student... And before I was married, I shared an apartment with two Indian guys and learned something about Indian uh, food, which I've always loved. 
And uh, you can get it in occasional Indian restaurants. You can get a few of the ingredients. Uh, you get curry powders from England uh, in the standard grocery store. But something big is coming, you say. Well, you know, when I tell people here in Chicago that one of the forecasts from trend people in the food industry is that Indian is coming, uh, you know, a lot of people are like, please. You know, if you it's go into any here. Trader yeah. Joe's, you know, you can get 15 different types of palak paneer and chicken tikka masala and korma. If you go to Whole Foods, widespread, you know, even Dominic's now. Uh, it's very common as a frozen food entree. But what people in the food industry are talking about when they say Indian is coming is they're talking about a level that has been achieved by Mexican food or Italian food. Uh, that means like Indian food could trickle down to the NASCAR dads or, you know, in, in the sense that it's penetrating the mainstream. You know, an example that I used uh, in introducing this section is uh, Thai food. You know, 15 years ago, Thai food um, was, you know, it existed in Chicago, of course. You would, our other guests would know uh, this well. Uh, but you couldn't find it in places like where I'm from, Kenosha, Wisconsin, um, or in places in, you know, like Fayetteville, Arkansas. Now, Thai food has, you know, there are Thai restaurants virtually in most, you know, mid-sized cities. If you go to Seattle, you can get Pad Thai at Safeco Field. If you go to REI and you want to go camping, you can get dried Pad Thai. Um, pad, you know, Thai food is now referenced in places like TGI Fridays. Uh, it's, it, you know, Thai chicken is a descriptor. That is what people are talking about in terms of an, a wave of Indian food. And if you want to get a glimpse of this Indianized future, uh, you simply need to go to the United Kingdom where, you know, with a larger South Asian community, um, if you go into the equivalent of a Dominic's or a Safeway, a Sainsbury, you'll find prepared Indian foods hot. Well, that was the case hot. in the United Kingdom. I'm sure it was the case in London yeah. 25 years yeah, ago. Yeah, exactly. Not in fact, thing. chicken tikka masala has been described as the national dish of the United Kingdom. Yeah. Quite you know, it's it, it just it's as mainstream. I can't as resist uh, seeking this just selfishly, and I'll uh, I'll ask the man from Kendall College, who knows undoubtedly about all Chicago restaurants. Christopher, what's the best Indian restaurant in Chicago? <laughs> you know, I, I have to say I don't go out for Indian food that often. You don't? The, no, and and it's been literally uh, years. Although in the last year, I ate at a place in Oak Park actually, and I can't remember the name. That was really good. Um, but, you know, in, Indian food is, uh, you know, I don't know. I, I don't know if I agree. I, I, I don't think that's going to be the, one of the next biggies. Um, it's, you know, so a lot you of people. you disagree with the pro prognosticators? I, I do. A lot of people have been to. talking about Indian food for quite a while. Uh -huh. Just like North African food, have you know that's you know why isn't that hasn't it made more more progress? And you can always say, well, certainly we eat some merguez now, and you know there's always those examples. But I, I I and I don't know why. I don't know if it's that that mix of all those different spices that that sort of hasn't hasn't broken. So what do you think is the coming ethnic cuisine? Well, 
you know, the other before I answer that, the other thing that has to happen for it really to be adopted in the U.S. is it has to be Americanized. Mm. When you go to mm-hmm. when you go to Thailand, it, that is not the Thai food we have here. All the Thai food here—I shouldn't say all—a lot of the Thai food here has been Americanized, and it's you know, for instance, sweet. When you when you go to Thailand, it's not sweet. It's it's built on on flavors that are are lots of umami and lots of acid and and spicy, but not sweet. And so it has been Americanized. Um, when it comes to what I think are are next, I I think that we're going to be looking south. And um, we say Mexican food, but I believe we've only scratched the surface. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I spent a lot of time in Mexico. And I'm absolutely amazed. I mean, even this week, we have a chef from Mexico teaching a two-week class at Kendall. And you should see the diversity of the foods that are just touching our border. And so there's a lot more to, to learn. And, and I think that that trend has started, but it's not, it's not done at Josh all. has well, people in, in his book who are predicting that African foods well, will become important. Well, first, just to piggyback on what Chris was saying about the – you know the deeper exploration yeah. of Mexican regional food, and you know, and deeper and deeper into Latin America. I mean, that is also anticipated by these same trend spotters who are suggesting that Indian food is coming. And Brazil. And Brazil. that's my other biggie. See, I think, you know, you look at Chinese food. You can get fast food Chinese food, no problem. It works. The cuisine works. Mm-hmm. Quick stir fry. Put it in a styrofoam box and take it home. With Indian food. It's possible. I mean, I, I think if you're going to see a big pop in a certain ethnic cuisine, it's got to make sense with our way of life, which is fast now and then, you know, eat it in about mm-hmm. five minutes. Like shawarmas, you know, shawarmas work. You can wrap it in foil while you're driving. You're, you got one hand on the wheel, one hand on the shawarma. It works. Um, so I don't know. I think it depends on the depth that we're talking about. Am I going to grab some non bread and dip it in that, you know, that sag paneer while I'm driving? Probably not. But if they can find a way to make it into right. a sandwich, hey, I'm there. The Let's gateway dish. Like, for instance, in Germany, the donor kebab is like a Germanized version of Turkish food. You know, like that's the class, it's based on the classic German formula meat and carbohydrate. Except, you know, it's like the transition to getting them ready for a, a broader discovery of the foods of the I, I, I presume it's on a stick. Um, it's served in a stick in a bed of pita, uh-huh. I believe. I yeah. haven't been in Berlin lately. But just back to uh, the point that, Homaro, uh, this discussion of Indian food and, you know, that it has to be quick and ready to go and it has to be – it has to make sense for this American audience. Uh, what – folks in the food industry say is kind of a sign that it's coming is what's called a you know a quick service restaurant an indian qsr and uh, apparently there was a restaurant here in chicago an entrepreneur who was trying to do this well there is chutney joe's which is you know it's, it's there, it's, are, two, there are two or three to, quick service restaurants for indians uh, on devon you can for indians in, but this well, is I mean, sort you of can like a, it and get it too, a gringo version of indian food uh-huh. I think we should call it Indian inspired because yeah. once we get done with it I as suppose. Americans, yeah. it's going to become some alien. Well, that's food. even that's true right. for lots of. But Mexican one encouraging sign, though, was uh, I just noticed at Cozy, you know, which is this, you know, kind of. Uh, are you guys familiar with Cozy? C O S I. C O S I. 
you know, and this is again, this is me beginning to to think like these trend spotters. Um, I saw that there was a tandoori uh, chicken on their menu. You know, like that's a kind of a sign of of Indian food being translated for an Amer- or incorporated. Um, the topic is uh, food, of course, tonight, and the food of the future, and the future as it begins to show up in the present. Uh, and also uh, interesting perspectives with regard to whole new kinds of food, particularly the exciting, uh, rather startling prospect of, of in vitro meat, which we are assured is coming if the work of many, many researchers uh, will bear ultimate fruit, or rather will bear ultimate meat. Uh, we're going to pause in just a moment, and then we will go to the phones. So the phone lines are open at this instant. And we look forward to your questions and comments and reports from the food front. The number is ever 312-591-7200. 312-591-7200 for email. As ever, the email address, and this is particularly useful for our Internet listeners far away. We'd love to hear from some of our listeners elsewhere in the world tonight with regard to what the food trends are in your uh, neck of the woods or your neck of the world, uh, including our Australian listeners and others on the Pacific Rim. If you want to reach us by email, then the email address is extension720 at wgnradio.com. Reviewing all of that again once more for phone numbers 312-591-7200 and for email extension720 at wgnradio.com. On to your contributions right after these words. Extension 720 with Milt Rosenberg on 720 WGN. And we return and we'll go almost instantly to the phones. Um, First, a quick reintroduction of our guests. Christopher Kotke, Vice President of Kendall College School of Culinary Arts, also Vice President and Laureate uh, of Laureate International University's Center of Excellence in culinary arts. I'm not sure what that means, but explain it quickly. Well, what that means is that we uh, at Kendall do work all over the world, and quite frankly, our courses are taught in uh, 15 campuses in five countries. So I am uh, on a lot of airplanes. Well, that's wonderful. Uh, Homaro Kantu is the executive chef chef at Moto Restaurant and chef and owner uh, at Ing, I-N-G Restaurant. Uh, And Josh Schoenwald, freelance writer based in Chicago, is the author of a wonderful new book titled The Taste of Tomorrow, Dispatches from the Future of Food. 312-591-7200 is the number. We've got some people online, and we're, uh, we still have some lines available. So if you've got a question to ask or a comment to offer concerning uh, artificial food, real food, your experiences with food, your hopes and aspirations, what you'd like to have on your table uh, in the year 2035 or 2030, or what you'd like to have on your table uh, before this year is over. Give us a ring, 312-591-7200. First caller is Simon. Good evening, sir. Are you there? Yes. Go ahead, please. Yeah, I just wanted to make a comment. As uh, I'm, I'm an English transplant here, living in North Indiana, being here 13 years. And uh, I, I know one of the first things that was kind of amazed when I moved here was uh, the lack of like Indian restaurants here, because I don't know how familiar I was with Britain, but there's 
if there's an Indian restaurant on every corner, it seems like in every town. And when I came here, I just didn't see that. And I thought, you know, Britain gets a bad rap for, you know, having boring, bland food. But I thought like Indian food would have been more prevalent over here. And on that same subject, I know you were talking about how, like, Americanized food is, but in Britain they have, like, chicken tikka masala, which is actually a... Apparently, you wouldn't be able to find that in India. It was a it was a food like developed for the British palate, and then they transplanted it back, you know, all over the world. That was just my comment. I was kind of uh, surprised not to see any as many Indian restaurants in the, you know, around in the suburbs. Yes, sir. We've been talking about Indian food, but um, do you have any further comments in response well, to this caller? Well, that is a. Uh, I think, a demonstration of just the demographics. I mean, the United Kingdom, particularly yeah. London, has a much larger South Asian population. And much yeah. like the you know, presence of uh, Mexican foods uh, is yeah. much wider here uh, in the United States and particularly in California and Texas, um, I think that that, that also, um, you know, certainly may be the phenom behind what you're seeing in the UK. Um, there is you know, one of the folks that I talked with in The Taste of Tomorrow, um, a food developer in the Bay Area. Um, uh, Steve Gundrum uh, suggested that the first place we'll see this, you know, this beginning of an assimilation of Indian foods would be in the Bay Area. Uh, in the, there's a large middle-class Indian population, particularly in the tech sector, and that might lend itself to the type of, of more um, you know, beginnings of uh, Indian food that could appeal to a, a broader uh, Americanized audience. Well, and, and you, know, you also have, a, have the, the history. You know, food is also history at the same time. So you, know, you have the whole you know, UK and, and, and Indian connection historically. So there's a, you know, that's something we don't have in the U.S. I mean, we were not involved in India. Therefore, we don't have that same sense of I've got to get some Indian food where very much we have that <laughs> sense of Mexican food here. Devon Avenue is a good street to oh, yes, it is. eat up and down yeah. on. There are yes. a number of fascinating restaurants, including uh, increasingly, I note, many vegetarian restaurants, which is the South Indian tradition more than the Mughal tradition of the North. There, there is a restaurant. You asked Chris earlier, like, what's his favorite Indian yeah, restaurant? Yeah, I'd love to have yours. I, you got to go to Hema's Kitchen. Oh, that's hmm. great. Um, yeah. I've been going there since they had an old location. In fact, there, there used to be a baby crib in the dining room. And I've been going there so long that I've watched this kid grow up. Is that I, one of the Devon Avenue restaurants? Yep, Hema's, Hema's? Kitchen. Yeah. H-E-M-A-S. And it's, uh, it's an old lady who cooks mm-hmm. just like she were in India. And it's very authentic. Uh, it's addictive and totally not healthy, so you have to go. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, right now we have to pause for an update on the news. For that, to the WGN Newsroom and Walter Hoover. Extension 720 with Milt Rosenberg on 720 WGN. Go on. Yes, yeah, so we're talking about miracle berries. I've had, I had trouble getting you guys to... Pay attention when we are reintroduced. So I thought I would leave the mics on and let you just talk about what you're talking about. So what are you talking about? So uh, at at one of my restaurants, it's a restaurant where we do what's called flavor tripping. Mm-hmm. So you come in and uh, 
let's say you order a gin and tonic. Well, right in the middle of drinking that gin and tonic, it's going to turn into a slow gin screwdriver. And we do that because we use this little berry that tricks your taste buds. So basically it blocks your ability to taste sour and bitter things, some bitter things. And so when you eat a lemon, it tastes like lemonade, as sweet as candy. And so what I've been spending the last eight years doing is working on a cookbook called the Miracle Berry Diet Cookbook, which after eight years of very long, hard work, is going to launch in January. And it's the world's first cookbook, which will enable you to eat all the junk food you want without eating any sugar whatsoever. So you're tricking your taste buds into thinking that this cookie tastes sweet, but what we did is we actually just took balsamic vinegar and we integrated it into a cookie recipe, and that vinegar then tastes sweet. Um, it basically dumbs down these very complicated formulas for a home cook. So if you can cook with Betty Crocker, you can cook <clears throat> with this. I wonder, Christopher, does that sound to you like uh, new techniques that you are ultimately going to have to train your students in? I don't know. <laughs> I have to learn more about it. It sounds pretty wild, actually. Well, it's funny because um, we're actually working with uh, the Le Cordon Bleu Corporation. Um, sorry. We're working with the Le Cordon Bleu Corporation to integrate this into their baking and pastry uh, you know, because I, I look at it this way. You, you have all these uh, great teachers. You have all these great teachers, and uh, we need to teach them how to make healthy junk food because, you know, you may spend two years in baking and pastries learning to make the entire world fat. Why not give them the same tools to make the same product except now this product is healthy for people? I we're, we're working on a number of initiatives or products where let's say we open up a donut shop, and we actually have this on our menu. Uh, it's basically a donut that has no sugar in it, but it tastes better than a real donut. If I opened up one of these next door to Dunkin' Donuts and I could make the claim that mine has zero sugar and then maybe open up an ice cream shop next to every Baskin and Robbins, this opens up a whole new world of competitive opportunities for culinary students. Because it's no secret that there are tons of students coming out, not enough new concepts opening. And so what we're looking to do is provide the tools to increase the competition. By the way, where do the students come from? Uh, do you have people of proper aspiration, for that matter, of proper attitude, so that we can go on producing uh, good journeyman chefs and even some occasionally great chefs? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, that's one of the roles of, of a great culinary school is that we take students who are, are able to do it and uh, not only teach them but give them the professional attitudes uh, that, you have to, that you have to have to be successful. And that's, uh, that's one of the trademarks of what we do. Um, you know, Kendall's a tough place and uh, we're very serious about what we do. And, you know, when people graduate, they're ready to go. How do you rank in relation to the, C the other CIA? Culinary Institute of America. <laughs> you mean the, the spy school? <laughs> you know, the, the reality is... You know, they used, to be, they used to be down the street from where I lived. Really? I was, uh, for a few years, I had a job as an assistant professor at uh, Yale University. They were still in New Haven at the time. But they later moved to... What town is it in New York State? They're up in Hyde Park. In Hyde Park. Yeah. But uh, they train chefs. You train chefs. Correct. Are you the two leading schools doing that sort of training in this country? Well, you know, the thing is there isn't one definitive ranking that just doesn't exist for culinary schools. 
Um, but, you know, Kendall is widely regarded as one of the very top schools, and CIA is also one. But there's a, there's a very small group of, of schools that, uh, you know, has the national reputation um, because we're very serious about what we do. And um, track record is, you know, we have a lot of great and very successful alums. You actually have a restaurant at the college, haven't you? Correct. Yeah, we actually have three uh, different restaurants. And uh, one is open to the public and is a fine dining restaurant. Um, and it is, I'll tell you, one of the great things that happened to us last year is that that restaurant is listed and recommended in the Michelin Guide that came out in Chicago. Really? Which was, was, was huge for us because, I mean, let's, let's, you know, well, let's face many, it, how it's many still stars, a classroom. How many stars did you get? We, we don't have stars. We're a recommended restaurant. Uh, it, I mean, to have a star wouldn't have been appropriate because the reality is it's a classroom. And I always call it my mini miracle because every 25 days, um, imagine as a chef, every 25 days you lose your entire staff. You train a new group for two days and you open up to the public. And, um, and it's, not a, it's not a small menu. It's not a dumbed-down menu. I mean, it's, it's, a real, it's a real menu and it's really complex. And uh, every time we pull it off, every day, whether it's front of the house, back of the house, I'm, I'm always amazed. I've never been there. Well, I think I want to come. You, you now have an invitation. Yeah, great. Now, <laughs> let me go back to some of the listeners. Let me first say we've got lots of room available on the, <clears throat> the telephone board. Uh, so I need some good calls from my friends. Get in there quickly with anything you want to say, including, of course, any comments about ethnic cuisines, including the one that serves your own ethnicity. 312-591-7200, the number. And we look forward to your calls. Get them in right now if you are so inclined. But I've got a number of emails here. Let me read this one to you. I was diagnosed as diabetic this year, and I'm struggling with the extreme reduction of high-carb foods, such as potatoes, rice, and bread, which I used to eat in large quantities. Is there any or is there much research on artificially low-carb potatoes, rice, or grains? I would pay $20 for a less than... 20-carb full loaf of Italian bread, in case anyone out there needs some motivation. There's tons of diabetic-friendly bread products. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. The problem is is that they all taste like garbage. Um, oh, well. And <laughs> he says he wants a full loaf of Italian bread that tastes like Italian bread. Right, and that's the key. Um, you, you know, there. I don't think that the market for that is big enough to warrant, you know, a company say like Bimbo Bakery, the biggest bakery in the world, to just shift into diabetic friendly breads. I think you need a smaller, more nimble company to be formed that says that's the only thing that we're going to go after. We're going to go after the 300,000 diabetics in the state of New York and, you know, open up a bake shop. Um, and, and I think that's where, you know, we we need to channel our, our focus is – Getting those niche markets uh, met, getting those customers satisfied before they become ep- epidemics. I, you know, I, I think that one encouraging sign for the caller is, you know, the spectacular growth of gluten-free foods over the past five years. Um, and also, I believe there's a, a company in Chicago, you too might be more familiar with it than I am, that specializes in it's a bakery. It's, I think it's called Eat Healthy Foods that just is geared toward um, baked goods for people with various health challenges. Um, I, I think it may be primarily uh, gluten-free. But nonetheless, I, I think that it, it should be you know, a more encouraging time for people with 
health challenges, whether it's Crohn's disease or celiac disease, with you know technology contributing to um, to helping. Well, you know, I I, I think that you know to Homaro's point, you know, we are going to be seeing more and more of these products out there, and I think that you know if if you look at some of the other products that were developed for other things previously, you know, they started out meeting a functional need. In other words, you know, this is where a product has to be. Here are the specifications, and somebody produces it. Of course, taste is the other issue. And so typically these products start out meeting a functional need, and then they'll evolve into things that taste better as technology mm-hmm. improves. Yeah, with and gluten-free baked goods are improving. Oh, it's uh, yeah, it's yeah. amazing. The, the the progress on gluten-free has been has been incredible. Absolutely, we um, have many uh, new phone calls waiting, and we'll get right back to the phones after we pause for these words. Extension seven twenty with Milt Rosenberg on seven twenty WGN. We will go directly to the phones and. I believe the first caller is Mike. Good evening, sir. Are you there, Mike? No, Mike. Therefore, perhaps we should go to John. Let's try John. John, are you with us? And gentlemen, you will understand we've had some real, uh, uh, some real shakedown cruise troubles this week with the phones and with just about everything else. That's yes, why. Hello, Mel. Yes, who are you, sir? Yes, my name is John Milk. How, how is everybody doing this evening? Go ahead, please. Yes, yes. My question is, how is the local food movement um, going to affect the restaurant industry uh, in the near future? Well, we have a farm at Moto Restaurant that's right next to the kitchen. And I tell you, we do it for a couple reasons, to save money and to produce a more tasty product. But if you replicated that at home, let's say that you just started, you found the magic bullet to grow all of your food on your roof, in your basement. You didn't have to leave. You still want to go out. You want to celebrate something. You want to be served. I don't think it's going to affect restaurants one bit. I mean, if you look every year, restaurants have expanded according to the uh, the NRA handbook. Uh, every year they've expanded, including over the recession. And so people... In America, they, they like to be pampered. They like to be served. And, uh, you know, usually those trends start in restaurants. So, you know, the whole farm-to-table thing really uh, got a push from top-end restaurants, and then it sort of trickles down from there. Uh, and I think that restaurants are always going to be on the cutting edge of, of trends, and, you know, um, and then it just sort of trickles down. I definitely eat out a lot more than I did when I was, say, 16 years old. And, um, you know, I think as you get older – you just kind of appreciate those nicer things in life. Well, and, you know, from, a, from, from the Kendall perspective, I will say that, you know, we see the, the locavore movement within restaurants as, uh, as a trend that is just gathering speed. And, you know, for, for a lot of reasons, and we don't have the time to go into them all, we, we need to be paying a lot more attention to what we can produce locally and, and even, you know, sort of micro-locally, you know, what can be produced at the restaurant. You know, at Kendall, we have this, this huge garden outside, and we produce a lot of, a lot of produce. I mean, you know, over 2,000 pounds a year that goes straight into our restaurant. Now, we use that as an educational tool, but at the same time, it also feeds our, our, mm-hmm. our customers. And 
you know, it's something that customers want to see. They want to know where their food is coming from. So I, I think to answer your question, <clears throat> this is just the beginning. And, and I, I think that at the same time, you know, as Homero, you said, restaurants many times set the trends. And if the restaurants are doing it, then what happens is all of a sudden stores start doing it, grocery stores start to do it, and then people start to do it, and there it goes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like focaccia. 20 years ago, nobody even knew what that was. Now you got people making it at home. Yeah. They're making tiramisu from scratch. They're watching the Food Network. They're making all the stuff that you, you said. You 20 years ago, people didn't know what kasha was? No, focaccia, like making fresh focaccia at home. Or oh, making, focaccia. Yeah, making, I thought you were speaking of kasha, the green. Well, maybe that too. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, you know, now the, the home cook is like a, where a, a restaurant chef was 20 years ago. <laughs> um, it's really remarkable. My, my wife is an amazing cook, and she makes things that I probably wouldn't even make in my own restaurant. And so it elevates what the restaurants need to do. They have to stay like 10 steps ahead to entertaining people. Our thanks to the caller, and we'll go to the next one, who may be Mike, if I have that right. My friends of the booth. Yes, sir. Go ahead. Hi, and I apologize if this uh, topic's already been covered, but I was cruising Netflix the other day and came across Marcel's Quantum Kitchen and was watching his take on molecular gastronomy. And I found it very interesting, but then I found out that a lot of what he's doing is it seems to be using gelatins and liquid nitrogen. And he doesn't exactly explain the concept of molecular gastronomy. So if you could give me that in a brief synopsis, I would like to hang up and listen to what your guests have to say about that meat. Well, it would be like asking an Italian chef, explain the concept behind Italian food. You don't know. There's good Italian food. There's bad Italian food. I can tell you what I do. Um, What we specialize in is, is approaching food and science collectively to look at green solutions to bigger problems. Um, and on top of that, we have to provide a great service through our restaurant. At the end of the day, if it doesn't make the food taste better and it's not a higher quality product, it'll be a fad and it'll go away. What is a green solution in the kitchen? A green solution could be anything. Um, it could be growing your food next to the kitchen. It could be using software to run the kitchen um, so that way you don't use paper. Uh, it could be you know, composting uh, food products to produce methane gas to burn out of your gas burners. All of these things we're working on. You know, that to me involves food and science. Um, For a long time, food and science was just a gimmick. It was just guys doing crazy stuff for the heck of it. But that's how all great arts start. you got to have one guy, you know, just throw it out there. Throw some lamb in in an ISI cartridge, you know, a foamer and make me lamb foam and put it on my lamb pizza. Some guy did that. And now 20 years later... Thanks to Ferran Adria, we've got people looking at food to solve big problems, and that's great. We, one, you need that spark. You need one, that initial aha. One thing that I uh, wanted to you know, add is in my book, The Taste of Tomorrow, uh, one of the you know, realities of food <clears throat> politics today is it tends to be – there tends to be an effort, and I've experienced this in talking about my book – of this polarized situation where there's, you know, people like Homaro who are the, on team technology and then there's, you know, the Alice Waters camp, um, which is, you know, back to natural methods. And I think, you know, and I conclude in the book is that it needs to be both. It needs to be a synthesis. You know, <clears throat> it, it, it needn't be, 
you know, one or the other. It needn't be, you know, use technology to grow in your own home or, um, you know, the movement towards, you know, wanting more local seasonal foods is also, you know, highly sustainable. So just saying that, you know, well, kumbaya. Let's I, continue to <laughs> continue to do we're, both, and we're all holding need, hands. Here. Needn't do the uh, the you know this foodie fundamentalism that prohibits you know technology. But, you know, I I think that you know back to the conversation we had about an hour ago, which is you know food is art and science, and I think one of the one of the gifts of molecular gastronomy has been to reintroduce science back into the world of food that was largely seen as an art only, and it is an art. And it is a science. And I see, again, you know, the students coming into Kendall, they're very interested in science. What do you think if Brillat, Savarin, or Escoffier were listening to us tonight, or if they were at this table, what would they say about these new trends in food? You know what? I, I think, you know, if, if you look at Brillat, Savarin, he was someone who was eternally curious about food. And, and he actually, there's a, there's a chapter in his wonderful book that's called Osmosome. Which is a little obscure chapter in which he is trying to explain the concept of umami. But he didn't have the words to do it, nor the science to back him up, but he knew something was there. It's that, sign of, it's that kind of curious uh, spirit that is the basis of, of science. And at the same time, he would write another chapter that was a, you know, sort of almost poetry about the first asparagus out of the ground that was, was very much of an emotional artistic sort of sort of piece. So I, I you know, I, I think that he and, and Escoffier would mm-hmm. would look at these things and, and, and be curious and, and see what they were capable of doing. I The Physiology of Taste is my favorite book on food. Uh, that's Briad Savarin's, you know, uh, tr- main or his his book that he's known for. Um, I think that they would say Saying that food and science doesn't belong together is like saying that we shouldn't read or we shouldn't, you know, engage in math. It's just crazy talk. You know, food and science not only should be together, it should be taught to kids. They should understand, you know, how things grow. It's just understanding the world around you. It's the most basic human function of eating. And you should understand what your taste buds do and, you know, mentally what's going on. Why do you like tacos if you're Hispanic? Mm-hmm. You know, I love tacos. and I've never even been to Mexico. So, you know, I think, uh, I think it's important that we take this not only to the next level, but we integrate it all over. And I'm not saying like, hey, I like genetically modified foods. I actually don't. But that's my opinion. And everybody's entitled to it. But one opinion that we should share <laughs> universally is that science should be taught in all aspects of our lives. Yeah, and I, I, I just to back that up, I mean, that is something we're doing at Kendall in a, in a big way. We're, we're building a whole new kitchen right now that's just dedicated to something called sous vide, the whole kitchen, mm-hmm. and, and, and other sort of more scientific endeavors. Dedicated to, 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 learn. What, to what? It's, it's called sous vide, which is, is that? something that's very commonly practiced, but it's, it's, uh, it's putting something within a vacuum bag, sucking the air mm-hmm. out, basically, and then cooking it. And, and there's a lot... It's, we don't have time to get into it. There's a lot of legalities around that um, that certain health departments put on it, and uh, we will be doing very serious training to to uh, equip everyone to. We've do got it properly. about two minutes left. Indulge me. Uh, tell me simply this: What are your two or three favorite restaurants in the Chicago area, <laughs> other than your own? Bert, Bert's Pizza in Morton Grove. Uh huh. Um, Top notch burgers on the South Side. 
and uh, Lao Szechuan Chinese in in Chinatown. Mm-hmm. All right, I'm I'm a Bill Kim uh, fanatic. So anything that he does, uh, Urban Belly, for mm-hmm. instance. Well, who is who is Bill Kim? Bill Kim is uh, he's well Urban Belly and Belly Shack, and and they're concepts that are. Uh, one is Asian dumplings, sort of noodles, and the other is a combination of Asian and – or specifically Korean and Puerto Rican. But it's really accessible, inexpensive food, um, but just delicious. So other ones for me, hot chocolate, um, which is Mindy Siegel's place. And, you know, I was just over at uh, Mercat over here uh, on Michigan Avenue. It's had a great meal there. And, of course, Le Nomad, I have to what say. Is, what That's is Mer- four. So. What is Mercat? Mercat, Mercat is, uh, is Jose Garces's place, and uh, it is uh, sort of a Spanish-inspired uh, mm-hmm. food, you know, Spanish-Latin. It's on, on Michigan Avenue? On Michigan Avenue, right over by the uh, Hilton Towers. Um, I, I must concede that uh, you know my, certainly my opinion is far less weight than my peers here, and I have small children, so I don't get a chance to go out nearly as much as I should. But I will say that um, with this uh, limited range, I love this restaurant in Evanston called Hota, which is uh, formerly Jackie's. It's sort of a creative Latin place where I'm going to try to convince the owner to serve uh, grasshopper tacos at some point. And also, if you want African food, there's a great place on the south side called Yasa. And with that, we have come to the end of the available time. My guests have been Christopher Kochi, Omaro Kantu, and Josh Schoenwald provided the text for the evening, namely his new book, The Taste of Tomorrow, Dispatches from the Future of Food. Who's the publisher on that? Harper Collins. Harper Collins. And uh, I recommend the book. It's very, very readable and indeed quite informative about all sorts of things, uh, including the foods I don't particularly look forward to eating, but ultimately I think they will be foisted upon me. Um, We are closing down for the evening. We will be back again on Sunday night with something rather special, but there isn't enough time to tell you all about it. So until Sunday at 10, thanks to all for listening and a most cordial good night.